put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of the seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl, one of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them. Here it comes. You ready? This is my second time I get to do it in a whole year. Throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Amen. I imagine this sermon kind of went like this. As we continue in the gospel of Matthew, you can see him talking about it with his disciples and the audience as he's standing there looking in front of them. They asked him this question. You can hear it, right? The teacher. What's the kingdom of heaven like? Now, he couldn't be just simple and just say, well, you know, it's, well, it's perfect. Because you know what the next question is going to be. What is perfect? Well, you don't have to worry about anything. Well, what would there be to worry about? You, you see the cyclical cycle that would take place instantaneously when they start asking what the kingdom of heaven is like. And the first thing that he does is, well, it's kind of like a whole bunch of things. It's a little bit of this and it's a little bit of that. So I've heard these passages, scriptures uh, preached individually, like one at a time. And like, well, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And they spend 25 to 30 minutes with the diatribe of how it's supposed to work. But really, the way that the gospel writer has put this together is to, for them to be read at the same time. So you're going to get four parables in one, in all in one sermon this morning. And you're welcome. So let's start with the beginning. In these four mini parables, the writer records without explanation, like remember the first two parables, he would say, this is what it's like. And then he would, and then they, and he would say, and the answer before this is that. In this one, he doesn't do that at all. He just tells you the parable. 
the stories about what the kingdom of heaven is like. Individually, they've been dissected and analyzed and allegorized and sermonized. But what would happen, just for a second, if we looked at them as four shafts of light that converge into and illuminate for just a second what the kingdom of heaven would be like? So let's talk about the mustard seed. I remember when I would grow up in church, kids, if you came to church when I was there, which was a long time ago, we had these things called children's sermons, and you would all be brought up to the front. Really, it was for the adults more than it was for the kids. Let's just be realistic of that. And what they would do is, is we would have this sermon. I don't, I don't know how many times I've heard this, the children's sermon of the mustard seed. And they would pull out the little box of McCormick's seasoning. Do you remember? And then they would open it up, and then they would shake the mustard seeds into the kids' hands. Now, of course, my brothers and I would accidentally, I don't know what happened to my mustard seed. We need more. And the children's sermon person would be like, everyone except the bellboys. And they would have a bag of gravel that they would put onto our hands. <laughs> Say, blow that. You know. So the mustard seed is this really, really, really tiny seed. And you look at it and you think, wow, that's, that's amazing. And Matthew, in his brilliance, uses the mustard seed twice. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. And as a child, you think, wow, that's amazing. I could move a mountain if I just believed just that much. In this passage, he says, the mustard seed grows. And in its growth, it grows into a shrub and then eventually a tree. And in the tree, birds find its nests and hang out in the branches. Now, for us, that sermon's usually preached in the happy way. In the first century, it was not. In the first century, the birds were inhabiting the tree and the tree was the people. The birds were Rome. They were taking shelter upon the backs of the Jewish people. The Roman Empire came and rested upon all of the work and labor of the people. So for them, as they're hearing this, this would not have been a happy passage of scripture. It would have been like, you know, those birds that just kind of float in and they take over everything. But... For us, as we grew up, we looked at this as a happy passage. The nests providing comfort and shelter for people. The, the mustard seed being God. We've, we've heard this sermon. But the parable compares the kingdom to a mustard seed that grows to be huge. Is the part I want you to think. Possibly from small beginnings, the kingdom of heaven will flourish and become unexpectedly great. Then there's yeast. For those of you that make bread, you know that yeast is extremely important in making bread. And it's a, it's a chemical science in how to make bread. You have to put just the right amount of yeast for the right amount of flour. And if you don't do it right, it becomes unleavened. And it's just not worth it. If you have a chance, uh, you ought to check out BBC's uh, 
discovery of the excavation of Pompeii. Why is that important? Well, the excavation of Pompeii is Pompeii was blown up by Mount Vesuvius and then was sealed and encapsulated by lava. And now we're able to look back at what it would have looked like in the first century because Pompeii and Jerusalem were a lot alike in the fact that they were both cosmopolitan trading towns. So that the way that they baked bread, for example, would have looked exactly like or similar to what it looked like in Jerusalem. And it's really cool because you go into where there's this bakery and the bread is still in the oven. So you can still see what it looks like, what the bread looked like in the first century. Now the part that blows my mind is they've been able to do a chemical analysis of what the bread had in it. And now they are giving the recipe out online how to make Pompeian bread from the first century. That should just blow your mind. But Jesus uses yeast because it's something that everybody had. And they had to have. It describes the nature and the growth of the kingdom. Three measures of flour, by the way, are roughly equivalent of 50 pounds of flour. So they're not just cooking for themselves. <laughs> so the statement, a little yeast goes a long way and the kingdom of heaven are both transformed and beyond expectation. The hidden treasure spoke to me a lot as a child. The, the hidden treasure, my brothers and I loved pirates. I, I don't know. It, I, well, that goes without saying. So we would, when we were in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, you know, before we grew up and were totally awesome, uh, we, we were little, and we would build treasure maps for our backyard, and we had those little school, you remember the plastic uh, school boxes that you put your pencils and stuff in? Those became our treasure boxes, and we would go and draw this map in the backyard, put our G.I. Joes and everything that was of value to us, and bury it in the backyard. And that was all fine and good until my dad had uh, poured concrete over the top of the part where we had buried all of our treasure. Uh, and so uh, that was super great. Um, and, and I just know that at some point when someone decides to move that shed and tear that concrete down, they will have a very expensive G.I. Joe in a perfectly preserved plastic box. <laughs> I'm reminded of this because uh, just in the last couple weeks, we found out that uh, there was a, uh, a person digging out in Georgia or Kentucky uh, that, that was digging in their backyard and came across an entire box full of Confederate coins that are worth millions of dollars. In the first century, it was not unheard of for people to dig and bury their treasure. Perfect example of this would be the find at Qumran. There are Dead Sea Scrolls. They were hidden so that they wouldn't be taken or stolen. It was a very common practice, but the parable suggests a joyful discovery when they find this treasure. Notice the sheer joy of discovering something so valuable that all the other possessions are expendable in order to buy just that field that contains the treasure. This, the pearl narrative is is identical. So I, I'm not going to belabor that one. But 
the pearl narrative is the exact same idea. Now here's the, the one that I struggle with. The fishing net. Growing up, you hear these passages of Scripture preached in a lot of different ways. And I've heard this passage of Scripture used in the wrong way, in my opinion. In it, it says that the, the person goes out and casts the fishing net out. Remember, uh, the parables love it when Jesus goes fishing. The Gospel of Luke says, you know, he casts it on one side. Jesus tells him to cast it on the other, right? That's a, that's a big deal. Jesus calls us fishers of men. But in this story, it's just about the net. The net is cast out, and they brought to shore, and the people sort. This is the part we get in trouble. The good from the bad. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, we're supposed to do that. This is where the church has failed. And I use that very openly. It's not your job to decide who's good and who's bad. You should be focused so much so on your own mission of fishing that you shouldn't worry about the good and the bad. The humans are the ones casting the net. And Jesus says it very clearly. Well, the angels will separate it. And of course, you get to use my favorite phrase. They'll be thrown into the furnace of fire and there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But God does that, not you. Not even the fishermen. He, Jesus even says the angels will do that. Kind of like stop worrying about the things you don't have control of. Wow. But we've used this passage of scripture in so many different ways to exclude rather than include children of God. It's complicated. Our world is complicated. Jesus is trying to make it simple by using small stories, many parables to say the kingdom of heaven is just like this. Why do you have to make it so complicated? You remember last week we talked about part of the problem with the gospel of Matthew chapter 13 is it's, it's obvious that somehow, way, the church has decided, well, here's the rules and regulations in order for you to be a part of the way. Jesus is like, oh, yeah, watch this. God. God takes care of those things. All five of these parables deal with the element of surprise. The runt of the seed world, the mustard seed becomes the greatest of shrubs. A tiny amount of yeast can leaven many loaves. A person unexpectedly finds treasure. A merchant finds a pearl. And a fisherman hauls in unexpected amounts of fish. I think, for me, part of the problem with this passage of Scripture is we think it's talking about what happens after we die. Or we focus 
on everything about what's supposed to happen after we die. Notice Jesus doesn't say, the kingdom of heaven after you die is like. He says the kingdom of heaven is like. You can try to translate this any way you want. It's, it's in the present that Jesus is speaking in Greek, not the future tense. This is where the church struggles. This is where it's uncomfortable and we can feel it and it makes us feel not cool. And it's just, what are we supposed to do with all of this stuff? Josh, I don't really like this person. Well, too bad. The kingdom of heaven is like, is for us to try to be better. What if the world was the kingdom of heaven? Maybe, maybe Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like this to challenge us to be more like this. When I was preparing for my sermon this morning, I, I really struggled with this. I I think about all of the differences of opinion and all the things that are going on in our world, and it's, and it's extremely frustrating. The, uh, um, I, I, don't, I don't know if I have a, a fancy term for it, but this, this idea of putting uh, our faith into all of these outside uh, things, when our faith is an internal uh, experience that we share with others uh, because we love one another, not because we're trying to sort one another. The, the world does that already. They, they, they do a great job of it, and, and you can see how awesome it's working right now. What if, and this is my own opinion, and a beautiful part about this conversation is, is that you could agree to disagree with me, and I will still love you for that. What if Jesus was looking at his disciples and the people that were standing around him and he said, you know, you're just not getting it. I think what heaven is supposed to look like, for me personally, is a world that loves its neighbor in such a way that they don't even call them their neighbor. They're a part of their family. Man, that would be heavenly, right? I think maybe what heaven would look like today, if we had the opportunity to do it, would be that we would not have people that were hungry or homeless. We can't avoid sickness. That's just, that's just the way life is. I, I want to I wanna be completely open with you and not sit there and go, oh, well, everybody would be would be healthy. Well, yeah, that, that would be awesome. That would be great. But illness is a thing. It's a real thing. But this is why Jesus is telling his people in the first century, this is kind of what the kingdom of heaven would look like. I also think the part that we struggle with, and, and, and I don't know if we understand, the kingdom of heaven will be, and I think this is why he adds the fishing net part, is, is that we would love our enemies. 
what? I, I really don't have to agree with everything that my enemy says. I, I don't really have to, but if I can't extend God's love to them, how are we supposed to make bridges? The kingdom of heaven would not have that. We would not have gaps or holes. We'd have bridges being built. We'd have love and compassion being extended. And yeah, I'm being utopic. I'm, I'm thinking in a perfect world, but that's heaven, right? These are the things that Jesus is extending to us. These are what Jesus is trying to challenge us for. And for us to try harder with one another means that, yeah, the kingdom of heaven is a little bit like this and a little bit like that. The part that's hard for us is to recognize that you are the vessels of God's love. Whether you want to choose to acknowledge it or not, you are the fisherman. You are the farmer. You are the person in the fields. You are the merchant. And you have the opportunity. No, no. The privilege to be the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.